Welcome back to the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. As a former supper club host, I'm always intrigued to know what people like to eat. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper, inspired by today's topic. In season two, my guests and I will be exploring our complex relationship with chocolate to coincide with the release of my latest book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by the British Library. Today, I am joined by author Dr. Alessandra Pino, who has co-written the forthcoming Gothic cookbook, which I'm personally very excited about. It is the world's first cookbook inspired by the food in some of the most well-known Gothic novels and stories. You may have heard Ali on the gingerbread episode we did with Dr. Neil Buttery last year. Ali is also the co-host of the podcast Fear Feasts, that analyzes the horror genre in cinema and literature through the lens of food. Welcome back to the podcast, Ali. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. You must be getting really close to the release of a Gothic cookbook. Can you remind us what it's about and when it will be available? Yes, it's so exciting. So a Gothic cookbook is the first ever cookbook inspired by Gothic novels and stories. And there will be 13 chapters and each chapter will have a look at different Gothic novels and stories and what meals there are in the text and how food is used. And by Halloween next year, it should be out of its coffin and into the world of the living. So Ella and I are completing our second round of edits now, and it's been a very exciting process. I love that. It will be out of its coffin. That's brilliant. Um, Ali and I are joined today by food writer and novelist Sue Lawrence. As well as writing numerous cookbooks, several of which are focus on Scottish food, Sue has written a number of novels. Welcome to the podcast, Sue. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Can you tell us a bit more about the fiction you write? What inspires your books? Yeah, it's historical fiction. And usually I find a woman in the past when I'm doing some research, usually at the National Library of Scotland. And I'm fascinated by this person because sometimes she's just told about, her story is told about through the lens of a man, her father, her husband or whatever. And perhaps we know when she died, we very seldom know when she was born, unless, you know, it's the father who baptised her, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just want to give this woman a story. And behind that, I want to give her a voice because in those days, so many of the women had absolutely no agenda at all. So I wanted to give them a voice. And so I've done that in a few novels and I absolutely love doing it. I've read a a couple of your novels and they've been absolutely riveting, I have to say. And that's coming from someone who reads a lot of historical fiction. So I can thoroughly recommend Sue's books and I will leave some links at the end of the podcast in the show notes so that people can find them easily online. So we're here today to talk about chocolate because that's a season's theme. So how do you personally feel about chocolate? Are you a lover or a hater? 
Well, uh, I was always a chocolate lover, you know, and being half Venezuelan, I had access to some incredible cacao. But it was actually, paradoxically, a chocolate maker from Devon called Willie Harcourt Coos, who used to have a farm in Venezuela, actually, who I met at a food festival in South Africa. And he changed my perspective on a few things. He introduced me to hot chocolate made solely with water rather than milk, for example. Um, And this allowed for the quality of the chocolate to really come through and it made for an entirely different experience. So he used to make it first thing in the morning and it would kind of replace coffee, making it perhaps a healthier choice. But the high quality cacao has a potential range of hundreds of different flavor notes that's flavored by the soil, by weather, harvesting, drying, fermenting, roasting from the same crop of cacao beans. And, And I love the idea that instead of focusing on adding different flavors to the chocolate, like orange or chili, and enhancing it that way, that one could focus on the properties that the territory itself is able to provide. I love chocolate. I love all types of chocolate. But that was kind of what changed my experience of it. And Sue, how about yourself? Are you a chocolate lover or a hater? Yeah, but it's so interesting because, Ali, I first tasted proper chocolate from cacao in Venezuela. No. Crackers, and we went into into the jungle, and we had some sort of tasting. So that, to me, is extraordinary to hear because it did again change my whole perception. I was a bit of a dairy milk girl, yes. and and then I sort of found out about the different properties, the different flavor profiles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I have to say, I still like a bit of the you know the normal chocolate, but that day I never forget it in the, in Venezuela changed my life. We all know that chocolate can be lovely but it definitely has a darker side, and I'm not referring to the amount of cocoa solids there are in a single bar. In fact, chocolate has a number of skeletons in its history closet, but in this episode, we will be specifically exploring its sinister side and how it relates to women. Before we get into precise examples, I should perhaps explain how chocolate gained such an ominous reputation. The chocolate drink the Spanish encountered when they invaded Central America was dark, gritty, bitter, and usually served cold. Drunk by the Azteca Mayan elite, it was mixed with foreign spices like vanilla, achiote, and chilies completely unknown to Europeans in the 16th century. There was a certain mystique surrounding this beverage. Accounts from religious men like Dominican friar Diego Duran tell of chocolate being used as a ceremonial offering to pagan deities like the feather serpent Quetzalcoatl. Chocolate featured in marriage rites and a kind of baptism. It also formed part of the gift left on altars to honour the dead relatives, just as it is today on La Dia de los Muertos, which I discussed in episode one of this series with Maite gomez Reon. The Aztec king Montezuma II was said to drink chocolate before visiting his wives and concubines to prepare him for the rigours ahead. This gave rise to the theory that chocolate could be a powerful aphrodisiac, a rumour that persists today. So we have a substance that has links to both sex and magic, which certainly gave cause for concern in religious and secular circles during our early relationship with chocolate. Sugar made this odd-tasting drink more palatable, In the absence of wine, which didn't travel well to the New World, chocolate was soon being widely consumed by the Spanish colonialists, who clearly decided to throw caution to the wind as moral reservations were largely cast aside. However, chocolate presented something of a double-edged sword, particularly where women were concerned. 
with the negative aspects overshadowing any benefits gained by consuming it. So why are women intrinsically linked to chocolate? Why are we supposed to love it so much? Is it to do with sex? I don't think it's primarily sex. I just think it's everything about it. It's the whole sort of package of chocolate. I don't mean the actual silver foil. The way it's been presented over the years through advertising, etc. But also, you know, down to the basics, it's not just the flavour, it's the lovely melting texture of it. There's just something so seductive about that. But I don't think it links directly with sex, personally. I research a lot on sexualization and weaponization of food, and it's due to mainly a lack of control. And I think that a lot of this connection with women is to do a little bit with power and also how misogynistic society is. And I'll explain why. I think there is this courtship ritual which involves men purchasing chocolates for women, for example, which can be then interpreted as an exchange for sex. And if we look at the world of advertising, for example, there were adverts that did feature men, but it was more chocolate from the perspective of I'm going to give this man energy to ride his bike or, you know, there'd be a chocolate bar in his backpack or something. Whereas then with women, it was more to do with nurturing. And obviously they had the purchasing power of the or domestically. And so that's where we go into the realm of power. And it was up to the woman really to decide. And when it didn't work any longer for children, which were also mainly on the, the first adverts to do with chocolate, because women started to see, well, maybe this isn't so good for my child. Then it moved into, okay, this is an opportunity for women to have some me time and relaxation. And so we see through the advertising kind of arc, how that has affected the imagery that's connecting chocolate and women, I think, and it's suddenly become sexual. But then when I talk about misogyny, I also think that there is an obsession that goes way back before any advertising, probably from when the Spanish invaded the Americas and you know, chocolate had been used for thousands of years as medicine in ritualistic ceremonies, as an energy drink. Perhaps the fact that the Spanish weren't too sure really what it was they became suspicious of the people making it, which were mainly women. So these negative stories emerged. And so I think there's something there about the hatred towards women as well and the people dealing with chocolate and the effect that it can have. And also chocolate, as it became less of a luxury, it became more strongly associated to women. So it's no coincidence that sugar's economic devaluation coincided with its association to women and femininity. So there is a sense of exploitation there as well. In 1626, Bishop Bernardino de Salazar found to his cost just how beloved chocolate was to the wealthy ladies of Chiapas in Mexico. The ladies claimed that they were unable to get through an entire mass without a cup of chocolate to sustain them, which their servants would duly deliver mid-service. This incensed the bishop, who threatened to excommunicate the women if they did not desist from the practice. Several of the ladies ignored the bishop's threats, and, as Thomas Gage puts it, continue drinking in iniquity in the church as the fish doth water. This resulted in an altercation where swords were drawn by the women's male companions when priests attempted to forcibly remove the cups of chocolate from the ladies. Not long after this incident, Bishop Salazar became ill and died in excruciating pain. It was later revealed that he had been given a cup of poisoned chocolate by a servant who was in cahoots with one of the gentlewomen. The incident gave rise to the proverb, 
Beware the chocolate of Chappas. Whether the Chappas chocolate incident was true, it does neatly lead us on to discussing the nefarious uses of chocolate. So why do you think chocolate became the criminal's best friend? Sue, shall we start with you as someone who has covered some pretty nefarious acts in your novels over the years? (laughs) Um, I, I think everyone is so easily lured into it. You know, we would think, as Ali was saying, mainly women, but also men, because being given any gift is delightful, as obviously. But I think it, there's something about, um, it's like a sort of entrapment, but you have no idea it's an entrapment. As with certain cases, it's not hard. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's not hard to actually either inject into a truffle or a chocolate or to stir into some lovely hot chocolate the actual poison. I mean, you have cases of arsenic, strychnine, there's also um, wolfbane or monk's food, as it's called. And these would all be so easy to stir into hot chocolate. So I think it's those two elements that they're sort of luring in. Oh, how amazing. I've been given some chocolate. And then it's not hard to incorporate into some other delicious food, some really toxic poison. There's a darkness there. I was just listening to Sue and thinking there is an ease and a darkness in how chocolate is so connected to tragic labour conditions, colonisation, social injustice, exploitation. And yet here we are putting it in our favourite cake mixes, slathering it in the form of icing on cupcakes to celebrate milestones and joyous occasions and birthdays. And I think it's a treat. This fact that we make it, you know, our our hands are, are rather bloodied. You know, they're soaked metaphorically in blood, but also why not literally as chocolate becomes the ideal vehicle to poison people that you no longer want around? I mean, I think I'm on board with that. <laughs> Gosh, I don't want to get on the wrong side of you, Ali, that's for sure. I should be very wary of you <laughs> give me any chocolates. There were obviously a number of cases in Guatemala during the 17th and 18th centuries where chocolate was mixed with various herbs and spices and female body parts such as pubic hair, nail clippings and menstrual blood, um, as you do. These potions were fed to men with the aim of controlling their sexual desire. The chocolate drinks probably tasted weird, but were unlikely to make the object of the women's affections unwell. But as we've already seen with the case of the Bishop Salazar, chocolate could be used as a vehicle for much more dangerous substances. Now, Sue, I know you're based in Scotland and you've written a lot about Scottish food, but do you know if in Scotland during this period, were witches using love potions with or without chocolate? I don't know of any who were using it as love potions. The obvious one for me to talk about is the witches in Macbeth, of course. They were making, with all the eye mute and toad of frog, etc., they were making a charm of powerful trouble. So it's also something that you can have the other way. You don't want to lure them in for love. You want to lure them in, but then do something thoroughly evil and malevolent. That's the only one I know, not love potion, but certainly a troublesome potion. Ali, have you come across any love potions that evoke a similar sort of sentiment? It would make sense to you just because it's always been considered an aphrodisiac. And also chocolate can have that bitterness that is very good at masking stronger tastes and flavours and things that could potentially be poisonous. So that would be feasible, though I haven't come across any myself. There were two chocolate poisoning cases in 19th century Britain that particularly caught my attention when writing The Philosophy of Chocolate. 
In 1857, we have 18-year-old Glaswegian socialite Madeleine Smith, who was accused of poisoning her much older ex-lover Pierre-Emile Longelier with a cup of poisoned cocoa. The two had been conducting a very physical affair for several months, and the plan had been to get married. But Madeleine had a change of heart. She broke up with Longelier and became engaged to another man. The trust element is interesting in this case because prior to meeting Madeleine and drinking the fateful cocoa, Longelier had threatened to expose their sexual relationship to Madeleine's family. Clearly, Longelier had no idea his former lover wanted to cause him harm. So, how were Victorian middle class women viewed? Would the public have been shocked to learn that a seemingly sweet and perhaps not so innocent well-to-do teenager was a potential murderer? What do we think? There was some element of repression, possibly. I like the idea that women probably wouldn't have, a- have had access to many me- as many means as, uh, as men to kind of go about formally contesting something or an issue or showing some resistance. So the fact that they that it's done through food and in, in this case, you know, a, a, a treat or something sweet, which, as we say, is normally a form of celebration, brings up some really interesting issues around trust. Again, being a woman and the implicit trust that we have in someone who is a caregiver or potentially will be a caregiver and nourishment and being maternal. The fact that they're Victorian maybe there's something there about the oppression that women were going through at that at that point in time yeah i think they they probably were seen in that sort of class of women as upright but also perhaps uptight perhaps they couldn't express themselves perhaps she certainly you know if anyone had known that she'd be having sex with the, the older man that would have been the most shocking thing in the world and so it was against those two sort of characteristics that you know she was fighting And the only way she could see her way out of all this was to poison her lover. Well, absolutely. I mean, there is this question, isn't there? Was was it an act of desperation on the parts of Madeleine Smith? Or was she some kind of femme fatale, you know, an evil temptress just trying to cover up a sordid past? What do we think? Yeah, I think she was more just, she was in a hole. She, you know, because he was threatening to give her father all her letters and that would have exposed her and ruined her life, basically. So she had no choice. She had to do something. The only way way out she could see was to kill him. It was interesting, actually, because the case obviously went to trial and she was found not not guilty or the jury ruled that the incident was not proven. That meant that there wasn't enough evidence, as I understand it, in Scottish law at the time to prove that she had poisoned Emile Longelier. Now, I think, Sue, you might need to explain a little bit to us folks down in England, perhaps, or people that are listening in England or other parts of the world, what this not proven actually means in Scottish law. Yeah, it's completely unique. There's no other legal jurisdiction anywhere in the world, apparently, according to my my two legal uh, children. Interestingly, it's just about to be done away with. There's a criminal uh, justice reform bill about to, to go through Scottish Parliament. But up until now, over the centuries, it's been a verdict which is not guilty and it's not not guilty. Not proven means that the jury thinks you probably are guilty, but we cannot prove it. There's not enough evidence. 
Evidently, she did latterly confess to killing Mm. him much later in life. I think she was about 70 years old and it appears in somebody else's memoir. Apparently, she said she did do it and she would gladly have done it again if, if she had to. Ali, what do you think? I think between a rock and a hard place, a box of black magic. Why not? (laughs) The second case occurred in 1870s Brighton. Middle-aged spinster Christiana Edmonds formed an unrequited obsession with married doctor Charles Beard, with whom she struck up a friendship. In Christiana's eyes, the only obstacle preventing Dr Beard from declaring his love for her was his wife Emily. Christiana gave Emily some arsenic-laced chocolates, but her plan to poison Mrs. Beard backfired when Emily spat out the foul-tasting sweet. Emily was unwell after tasting the chocolate, so her husband suspected that she had been poisoned. So if someone gave your partner a poisoned chocolate, what would your reaction be? <laughs> well, I suppose horror. Well, it, it depends. Had he entered the dishwasher as I'll ask him to do, uh, you know, who knows? No, I'm joking. <laughs> horror. Of course it would be horror. First of all, you think, oh, phone the police, phone the ambulance. But then you think, why? Why would somebody want to do that? And then as the novelist, maybe a day or so later, when she knew it was going to be all right, how did they do it? I love that as a novelist. <laughs> Ali, what do you think? Would, would you, what would your reaction be? This says a lot about me, but like the first thing I would probably think is that they probably deserved it. And, you know, and trying to find out what they'd done. Okay. Okay. Well, um, (laughs) maybe it won't surprise you to hear then that Dr. Beard doesn't go to the police when he, even though he suspects that his wife has been poisoned by this woman who is clearly obsessed Uh with him. But he does tell Christiana that he wants no further contact with her. Christiana set out to prove her innocence to her dear doctor. She orders more chocolates from Brighton Confectioner Mr. Maynard injects them with arsenic or strychnine, then returns them to the shop on the pretext that she had ordered the wrong flavour. As the chocolates appear to be fine, Mr Maynard put them back on display and they were sold to other customers. Several people became ill after eating Christiana's poison chocolates, but four-year-old Sidney Barker died. Christiana even testified at the inquest into the little boy's death that she too had become ill after eating chocolates purchased from Mr Maynard. Fortunately for Mr Maynard, the court decided that the chocolates must have been accidentally contaminated by rat poison during the manufacturing process, and he was cleared of all charges. Dr Beard remained unconvinced of Christiana's innocence and still refused to speak to her. Christiana then proceeded to send out poison cakes and fruit to various Brighton residents, and even to herself and poor Mrs Beard, in the vain hope that she could persuade the doctor that she was not to blame. The police eventually caught up with Christiana by comparing the handwritten notes she had used to order the poison from chemists in Brighton and the notes accompanying the tainted food parcels. She was convicted of Sydney's murder, spending the rest of her life in Broadmoor, where she died in 1907. What do these two cases say about women and what they were capable of during the Victorian era? Were women still viewed as the weaker sex? These were exceptional situations. They weren't the norm. And I don't think it makes people view women as dominant in any way. Quite the opposite. It's like, as I said, between a rock and a hard place, 
what do you do? It is nearly an act of desperation, maybe fought out in a way that's slightly unhinged, obviously, but it's a form of rebellion. Women were still not not really able to do much during this era. I agree, Ali. They were viewed as the weaker sex because, you know, anything up until the First World War and certainly the Second World War, when women were actually doing everything, you know, running farms, doing machinery and all the things that they weren't allowed to do before. But also, I think, the, you know, very important is to bring in that famous phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And that's what it's all about. Maybe men don't have that innate sense of revenge. Perhaps, as Ali was saying, because the nurturing thing, if, if uh, you know, a person is a mother, you would literally do anything, chop your own legs off, kill anyone's sight, if something was going to harm a child, let's say. So I think that is inherently what people think should be within a woman. But because of that, going further down with that, you could say, well, their revenge is absolutely without bounds and without boundaries. They would do anything at all. That's really interesting, Sue, because there's actually no scientific evidence that women like chocolate more than men. And this fact always baffles me because it's something that that we're just bombarded with this imagery of women and chocolate. But there's no evidence for this. It's a complete myth. And it's socially we are passed on this information and it has an effect on us. The only thing there is evidence for is that women prefer rounded shapes. So when chocolates are, are rounded, they tend to go for, for those a bit more. But that's it. Men like chocolate just as much as women. But then it's kind of unfolded into this whole situation whereby, you know, we tend to naturally gravitate towards it as a form of relaxation, seduction, etc. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Mm, it is. At the time, what do you think was the most shocking thing about the Smith and Edmonds cases? Was it their gender, class or the method of poisoning, i.e. using chocolate? I think all all of those things to get a lovely sort of combination that's the sort of the perfect storm. Definitely all of them. Yes, definitely the fact that they're using chocolate. Didn't um, one of them pass pass it through the the cocoa through the window or something? You know, she'd already split up with him, <laughs> um, and he's still there, kind of. Oh, okay, I'll have. I mean, that's just. It's just weird, isn't it? Because there is a trust there. I think that's what makes it truly horrifying. Yeah, I think you're right. It is, well, with her, that case, certainly, Christiana Edmonds is a whole different kettle of fish. And to be fair, she's, I think, probably had mental health issues, which sort of brings me on to the next question in terms of the role the press played, because obviously in this period, the public have more access to newspapers and broadsheets. And how do you think they influenced how these women were viewed by the people at large. Oh, oh, the press, like today, they can make or make somebody up, you know, bring them up or bring them right down. Exactly the same then, but it, it was the expectation in those days far more than now that middle-class nice women would not ever have done those things. That's why everyone would have been shocked and just sort of desperate to see what actually happened because they couldn't believe that, you know, she could have poisoned somebody. <laughs> plus ça change, plus la même chose. <laughs> Ali, what do you think? Yeah, I agree totally. I think any form of media, though we might look back at what that kind of press is and think, how could this ever have had an influence over anyone? Because it's so different from how we view press today. But yes, I think it would have played a very influential role. And what influence did the novels of the time have on women's attitude to love and to a certain degree sex? I know that perhaps wasn't being written about explicitly in novels, but it certainly perhaps affected their opinions of it. Did it cause them to have a more idealistic and perhaps overly romantic view of how relationships between men and women should work? 
I suppose so. It was a lot of, you know, say in this period, the Victorian women would have read Austen. They would have, you know, just about been reading Henry James and people. And it was very idealised. I mean, it was quite sort of straightforward, you know, your, your Emmas and so forth. Uh, you know, they're not sort of airy fairy people. They know what they want. But that was how it was. And the main purpose was to find a husband. Whereas the other side of the, the channel, Zola was doing something totally different. Nothing was idealised. The, the romance was just sort of very almost sort of feral and it was awful the situations there were terrible etc there's a Scottish author who came a little bit late in this Lewis Brassett Gibbon for example Sunset Song which uh, a lot of listeners have heard of and that's again you know it's the opposite of romanticized idealized relationships it's hard and it's not just because it's a rural setting the Zolas were very much not rural they were in the middle of a city but it wasn't like that this is real life and Perhaps these Victorian ladies had only read the likes of Austen or Henry James, they say, that was, you know, everything's absolutely marvellous and wonderful and idealised. I agree. And women's attitude to love, yes, it was a romantic ideal, but also it was very much tied to the fact that actually a woman didn't have any rights if she wasn't married. So, of course, it's very much connected to a woman's worth and what they could achieve and, you know, their aspirations. I think that, that the novels probably had had a great influence, but also were influenced by the legality of the situation of women. What influence do we think cases like Smith and Edmonds had on the literature of the time? Did it create a thirst for like these murder mystery stories, Sue? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, a bit later again, uh, you know, Agatha Christie, would she have thought, ah, this is an amazing case. You know, some, I must write something like that because there's so many fascinating characters involved with, with both the Madden story and the Christiana. And also later on again over the channel, there's Maigret in, in Simonon's novels. And that's again fascinating slightly later but I'm sure they would have looked at all these lovely Victorian murders and thought yeah I can do something with this actually (laughs) Agatha Christie wrote a short story but I think it might actually be called The Chocolate Box and it features Hercule Poirot and it's the only case he failed to solve apparently it starts with him drinking a cup of very thick hot chocolate uh, which isn't poisoned, I should add, because uh, obviously Ben <laughs> had lots of other books <laughs> featuring Hercule Poirot. But yeah, apparently there was a poisoned box of chocolates involved and he failed to solve the case. When poison is used as a plot device in fiction, are women usually the perpetrators? And if so, why? I mean, it would be nice to see something different. It would be nice to see, but I can't say that I've I remember any plot that has that where a man is a perpetrator of a crime through chocolate. I can't think of one. No, absolutely. And also, you have to say, it's all about the strength thing. You know, if a man on the whole is bigger, stronger, et cetera, et cetera. So if if a woman goes to a man with an axe, is she going to kill him? Well, if she really wants to, she can manage that. But it's kind of more likely if it ends up with a, a fight, as we call it in Scotland, the fisticuffs, then... He's going to win. So go for the poison chocolate. All always. I agree. <laughs> because, you know, it, it just speaks to a sense of entrapment that people, men and women, by the way, because, you know, you look at what Henry VIII had to do. So I'm not saying it's just women, but <laughs> that's a bit extreme. But, you know, there, there is now more flexibility. Uh, at least in the West. I mean, I'm not talking for the whole, every single country is, but there is in general a little bit more flexibility. If you want to move on from a marriage, you can, but it wasn't the case before. And you could feel so trapped that that could be your only solution. I can totally see that. 
So why do you think we're still obsessed with real crime and murder mysteries today? Do you think Edmonds and Smith's cases would be as enthralling as they were in the 19th century if they were to occur in the 21st century? Yeah, I think so, because even nowadays, you know, in the paper online, you see things. You know, there's a, a case maybe about 10 years ago, of somebody sprinkling aconite into a curry and sadly killing her husband. There's an alleged case in Australia ongoing at the moment of a woman allegedly poisoning three of the members of her husband's family with a beef wellington with poison mushrooms. So that there's so much still going on. You mentioned Mushroom Sue, and it reminds me of Phantom Thread because I love that film where, well, he's a very famous fashion designer and she is someone a a little bit more, well, she's a waitress and they fall in love. Anyway, he is losing a bit of interest in her and she keeps him interested because she looks after him and there's this nurturing aspect. But every time she feels like he's straying a little bit too much, she will make him a poisoned mushroom omelette and it makes him feel sick and she'll look after him and then they become closer. So it just just reminded me of that. It wasn't chocolate, but is but interesting combination with mushroom. Yeah. Are there have, are there any particular movies that you've come across with your fear feasts that have have used chocolate as some kind of plot device, whether it's poison or not, Ali? There's lots of chocolate in horror. There is a lot of chocolate because of its more general and broader association to sugar, which I think there again, we have this darkness to how it was produced and this disassociation and separation that we need to make between us and the sites of production. So if we knew how some things came to our table, we probably wouldn't eat them. Same with meat products or other things of the sort. There has to be some creating a void around us in order to enjoy things that would not be so enjoyable. And I think that's why there is so much sweetness in horror. Given that we've spent this episode largely talking about people committing murder with chocolate, I'm not sure what to expect when I ask you what you'll be bringing to the season's potluck supper. So what dish are you contributing today and why? Sue, should we start with you? I'm bringing a venison chilli with dark chocolate. I just love a venison chilli. I often make it. I often have it when I'm up in the Highlands of Scotland. I do it classically, onions, garlic, etc., browning off the mince. And then adding oregano, cumin, chilies, as much or as little as you want. I could even get this past my, my grandchildren if I don't add too much chili because it's a lovely sweet dish, uh, rounded. But the chocolate it cuts through the, the kind of somehow inherent sweetness because of ayah passata, which are, you know, tomatoes are always a little bit sweet. Just a little bit. For example, 500 grams of the venison mince just needs about 30 grams of a really, really, really dark chocolate. It adds a, somehow a richness cuts through that sweetness somehow. And also it almost gives the, the sauce a kind of sheen, almost a little gloss, even though it's a tiny amount. So that is what I'm bringing to our virtual supper. Maybe some rice on the side, some sort of lovely bread to mop up with. That sounds so good. It does that sound good, so doesn't good. it? And what chocolate would you use? You say dark chocolate. You wouldn't necessarily say go out and buy an unsweetened chocolate you can get away with like a regular 70%. I, I would go for probably 80% if I had it. If not, 70% is absolutely fine. Yeah. Sounds lovely. And Ali, what about yourself? What are you going to bring? Now, listen, Sam, I know that what I've said today hasn't really inspired much trust. <laughs> I know you wouldn't eat anything that I'd make now, especially if it contains chocolate. So I have a solution for this. I have a very good solution. I'm going to be cooking and making chocolate and hazelnut cake from your book with your recipe. <laughs> 
from your wonderful book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, which I highly recommend. I loved every page of this book and I'll thank make you. this recipe. So my faith, your faith in me will be restored, hopefully. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much. I feel honoured. And hopefully there won't be any strychnine or arsenic <laughs> or aconite or dodgy mushrooms <laughs> included. I promise. So, Sue, what is next on the horizon for you? You mean poisoning wise? (laughs) Well, I did. I I would suggest that if you are planning on poisoning someone, this is not the place to be telling anyone about what you have in store. Uh, Book wise, uh, my next novel, my sixth one, comes out in March, and that's called Ladies Rock. And again, it's a Scottish one, historical. It takes place on Mull and Isla and Inverary on the west coast of Scotland, early 16th century. And then my next cookbook comes out next summer. It's a kind of a, a very large combination of Scottish baking. So it's half traditional and half kind of slightly more contemporary, up-to-date stuff. So while we're on the subject of Scottish baking, do the Scots use chocolate a lot in their cooking? I know traditionally you wouldn't have had it going way, way, way back. Is it something, an ingredient now that's quite light? Very much light. But when I was growing up, there was no such thing as... Um, chocolate a proper chocolate it was scotlock it was that repulsive plastic tasting artificial thing and it was put on but put it on a millionaire shortbread and you know i thought it was the absolute bee's knees everyone did and then luckily well can you still get it i presume you can luckily everyone now uses proper chocolate and what a difference so yes it's very 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 popular up here definitely excellent and ali how about yourself what's next on the horizon for you besides the gothic cookbook coming out yes well, I've been working for a while on a Georgette Heyer cookbook along with Dr. Samhurst, but Heyer was such a prolific writer, so it might take a while to get this one finished. <laughs> so I also, as you said, I host a food and horror podcast with Vanessa Backer called Fear Feasts. So I'm excited because we'll be starting a new season. We've just finished Satanic Foods and Haunted Houses, and I think that Witches is going to be next, so I can't wait. And I'm also a regular contributor and lecturer to the most amazing learning platform in Gothic studies hosted by Dr. Samhurst. And it's called Romancing the Gothic and it runs on voluntary contributions and it provides space for research, which is truly innovative and inclusive. And it's just the most interesting thing that you'll find in the area of the Gothic. So I highly recommend that and I'll be continuing my work with with them. Thank you to Ali Pino and Sue Lawrence for joining me today. You can find links to their books and social media accounts in the show notes, as well as lots of other useful links. You can discover more about the chocolate poisonings and other salacious bits of chocolate history in my book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by the British Library, and available from your local independent bookshop and, of course, various online sources. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a suitably festive episode, so tune in then for some more delicious chocolate history. If you'd like to find out more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com, where you will find details on my books on gingerbread, saffron and chocolate, as well as the forthcoming events I am speaking at. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which includes recipes and more detailed notes from the show. If you have any questions relating to this season's theme, you can leave a comment in the chat section on the Comfortably Hungry Substack page or tag me on social media. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Instagram, threads or Twitter at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. 
it really will help other listeners discover Comfortably Hungry. I'll be back soon with another chocolate podcast, but until then, take care. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com.